Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel. Welcome to the show. What we do here is we have guests, either entrepreneurs talking about their journey and how they became entrepreneurs and advice that they share, or people who help entrepreneurs and offer their advice. Or sometimes they wear both hats. Why am I doing this, Joe? Well, because I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself. As a lawyer and a consultant over the past 30 years, I've helped a lot of small businesses and I have seen a lot of mistakes. But I'm also a serial entrepreneur and I wish I could tell you that with all the mistakes I've seen, I didn't make any, but that would just be flat out a lie because I have made a lot of mistakes. So my passion is to share what I've learned and find other experts to share their advice and insights, to hopefully make your journey as an entrepreneur just a little faster and easier, and maybe a little bit more fun and inspirational. I always welcome comments, questions, suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, you've got an issue or a challenge, just email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. So I promised you a guest, and so without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest for today. Here with us today is David Liebman. He's the managing broker of a company called Merit Partners, which is an experienced team of real estate professionals focusing since 2014 on office, industrial, and commercial real estate. Now, David is a broker specializing in buyer and tenant representation, site acquisition, leasing, purchases, and build the suits of industrial and office buildings and land. By way of background, he practiced corporate and real estate law for five years, which he says helped create a great knowledge base before switching into commercial real estate brokerage full-time. He says he loves deals and negotiating. So do I, David. That's what attracted me to the law, too. He says he's fascinated by all aspects of education which he thinks is a key to everyone's overall life success, satisfaction, and enjoyment of the world around us. Until uh, December of last year, 2019, he was a board member and a board chair, most recently before he stepped off, of an organization called Youth Build Lake County, which is a not-for-profit that educates and trains underserved young adults 18 through 24. And hopefully we'll get a chance uh, sometime during the hour, David, to talk just a little more about that, because obviously the need for those kind of support networks like that has only grown with the whole COVID experience. He says it was an awesome, but also a humbling experience. In his spare time, too, he somehow has made time to officiate youth, adult, and college hockey. 
He loves the game, played in adult leagues for 25 plus years until injuries forced him to give it up. Uh, but he says he's still calling games as as a official out there. So with that introduction, David, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Well, Doris, thank you very much for that kind and uh, in-depth introduction. I don't know what else I'm going to talk about now. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll find something. But uh, I think the most natural place is to talk a little about you and your business. You mentioned in the bio that you shared with me that you practice real estate and commercial law, but then made the transition as a real estate broker. What what led you to do that? I mean, as a lawyer, obviously, you could do lots of different things, but what took you in that direction? Well, you know, I always have had the utmost respect for the law and for lawyers and those who practice it and do it well. Quite frankly, I kind of fell into it. It was it was an accident pursuant to my original job out of college, which was working for my father's uh, design and manufacturing company on the south side of the city, where I started doing a lot of contract administration work, and we had uh, quality assurance work associated with the construction of nuclear power plants, and very kind of it was very kind of interesting oh, wow. niche business. Yeah, it was it was kind of weird, but it was fun too, and. I felt that uh, because I was getting involved in a lot of the documentation and what have you, that a legal background would help me a lot in that position. So I made the command decision to go to Knight Law School, which I did. And partway through that process, yeah, working full time during the day. That's a tough, tough route. Good for you. Wow. Well, it was, but, uh, you know, I, I guess you can say I like being busy, and I sure was, you know, going to law school four nights a week and working uh, <laughs> eight or nine hours each day didn't leave a lot of time for much else, except for maybe studying. But in any event, partway through, I decided that, uh, I decided I really wanted to practice law and not continue on in the, uh, in the business. So I told my dad to sell the company. I was going to move on to the uh, field of law, and I started actually in litigation, which, frankly, I hated. The whole adversarial milieu just wasn't for me. I found litigation to be basically destructive law. That is, you're trying to destroy your opponent at every turn. And it really didn't matter a lot about the merits of your case. I found that to be kind of like a secondary issue. You really just had to win. I just didn't care for it. And I wanted to be a constructive attorney. I wanted to help people create or do things or get things done or do business or real estate transactions. And so that's where I made the switch to a different firm and a different kind of practice. And uh, for a while, it was it was fine. But frankly, Doris, I found out I, I really wasn't a very good lawyer. I really wanted to be out in the world talking and meeting with people. I didn't want to be buried in the law library. I didn't want to be writing briefs or, you know, arguing over various things in a, you know, in a courtroom if that's what it took. And and so I began to talk to people in the real estate business because I had done a few real estate deals and some zoning transactions and some some actual closings of commercial deals while I was practicing law. And I really found that whole area and all the people I met in that area to be much more interesting, having more fun and making a lot more money than I was at the time. So I... Sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah, it wasn't. And so I started going out and talking to everybody in commercial real estate. I talked to brokers. I talked to bankers. I talked to developers. I talked to lenders. I talked to asset and property managers. You name them, I talked to them. 
And finally, at the end of the day, it seemed to make sense that I should start in the brokerage ranks to really get a feel of the business and to get the most out of my desire and my goal, which was negotiating and doing deals. And I found that the people in the industrial property realm were the most interesting, the most normal, I guess, for lack of a better word, people that I really felt I could relate to. And yeah. so that's where I started. I started an industrial brokerage at then Coldwell Banker Commercial, which is now CBRE. And of course, months into my my first days in the commercial real estate business, we went into a recession in 1990. And it was a long haul to get out of it. But I stuck it out and began to do well. And the rest, as they say, is history. What about Merit Partners, where you're a managing broker now? Is that a firm you started or helped start? What's the backstory there? And talk a little bit more about what exactly Merit Partners focuses on. Sure. I did not start it. Instead, what happened was I was at a smaller firm where I met two other individuals who had varying experiences. One was a, a former developer of office and industrial properties. Most recently, he had been with a industrial development firm based out in Reno that did ground up industrial development around the country of big industrial warehouses. And another individual who had been an office broker and then a developer in Chicago and a redeveloper, most particularly, he was involved in a lot of what we refer to as adaptive reuse of existing commercial properties. He had particular expertise in taking existing commercial properties and redeveloping them into alternate uses. And the two of them and I came to another person who had a smaller brokerage firm. We all came for different reasons. The other two gentlemen were really looking for a platform from which they could seek out investment properties to buy and potentially redevelop. And that's what happened after about a year and a half at that firm. They found a property in Chicago that had been sitting vacant for a number of years and was available for sale, and they decided to buy it to redevelop it into multi-use. And at that time, the principal of the firm where we were working had decided to go in a different direction. So the three of us decided to go and acquire this property. I was not one of the buyers. You know, full disclosure, I was merely going to be the managing broker for the two gentlemen and the third gentleman who were going to buy the property and redevelopment in the multi-use. But I was going to help them do the leasing of the industrial and office portions of the property. In addition to which, I was going to do my own third-party industrial and office tenant and buyer representation work. In other words, I would just be doing deals on my own account, working for independent industrial and office tenants and buyers and investors. And that's what happened. In January of 2014, they closed on the acquisition of a million and a half square foot multi-tenant, multi-story industrial property that was virtually vacant and began to redevelop it for multi-use. And uh, it took about four and a half years or so, but they were able to develop it and lease it out and sell portions of it to the point that they had created occupancy of about three quarters of the property and also developed some vacant land that was included with the original project. And it brought the attention of a New York investment firm to buy the property from them. Thereby, they realized a pretty good return about four or five times of what they paid for it. 
in selling that property to the mm -hmm. New York investment firm. And, and now they have cash to start doing yeah. some other things with. Yeah, right? exactly. And one of the partners did retire. Another partner and I are still working under the Merit Partners umbrella. I'm really doing the one doing active brokerage right now. The other partner is still kind of determining what he might want to do, but we're we're looking at various options right now. And uh, well, that's where we're at today. You mentioned just before our show started that you focus really on brokerage of commercial real estate. What kinds of real estate transactions you do and that you don't do? Right. Well, I appreciate that because that is a big distinction. And, and you know, most consumers and occupiers of, of real estate don't necessarily realize the nuances of different property types. In our world as commercial specialists, we look at commercial properties as basically everything that's not residential. So commercial properties is like the umbrella. And underneath that umbrella, there are office properties, industrial properties, retail properties such as shopping centers, strip centers, regional shopping centers, et cetera. There are multifamily properties. Believe it or not, multifamily apartment buildings are considered in, in commercial investment properties. And there could be things like self-storage oh, properties. Right. So commercial properties are basically, it's still an umbrella term that refers to properties that people buy, lease, or sell for business or investment purposes. In terms of what I and we do specifically, is we are more focused right now on industrial and office properties. And I specifically am focused on the tenant and buyer side of the industrial and office property world. I know folks listening to this and, and certainly business people are thinking about this in the context of COVID-19 and how the commercial real estate obviously has been significantly oh, oh really is something going on I, there's like this pandemic and something's going uh, on oh really <laughs> well and i'm gonna guess that maybe all of the ripple effects are are still yet to play out so talk a little bit about some of the impact and some of the things that businesses should think about and be aware of because of the pandemic I will be happy to talk about that because that's basically all that anybody has been talking about for the last six plus months. More and more, and, and a day doesn't go by when I don't see numerous articles, emails, white papers, you name it, it's out there. And I will admit, I've actually contributed to some of that uh, onslaught of paperwork. In fact, I'm looking uh, at an article that I co-authored back in April with uh, one of my favorite commercial real estate colleagues, a gentleman named Jim Hockman, who's a great downtown commercial real estate attorney here in Chicago, but he also works really for people around the country. I've known him pretty much my entire career. We used to work at uh, CBRE many years ago. But we wrote this article called Difficult Decisions Ahead for Landlords and Tenants During the Coronavirus Crisis. And basically, our thesis was very simple. It's true when we release this article in April, and it's true now. You have to communicate the landlords and the tenants, office, industrial, retail, I don't care what commercial property type it is, they've got to communicate because this situation really requires landlords and tenants to work together to minimize the pain that they're going through and to thrive, if not just survive. So we point out communication as being key. And then we, we also pointed out that 
you've got to keep that landlord-tenant relationship intact because as soon as one party starts trying to take unfair advantage of the other, it's going to be chaos. And everybody will get hurt, not just one side or the other. And there are various ways to handle it. I mean, you've heard about tenants trying to get rent holidays, as they're called, if they get their rent deferred for a period of time or rent reduction for specific terms or time periods and various ways to try to make it work during the heart of this pandemic crisis. And of course, we're seeing, yeah. you know, numerous social distancing guidelines that are impacting tenants' uses of space, much less their obligations, as well as the ability to do for government to be able to do approvals of ongoing projects. And I had I had one of those projects myself just a couple of months ago. I was representing an industrial user for about 250,000 square feet of warehouse space. And we were able to negotiate a deal during the midst of the pandemic. And our biggest concern was how are we going to be able to get this tenant into the building in time to meet their time frame? Because we had to build out over 5,000 square feet of new offices. This was a speculative industrial warehouse that had never been occupied before. And we had to... Oh, wow. work with yeah, we had to work with the landlord owner and the builder. We had these uh, weekly online video calls to get, you know, a dozen people on the phone, on the line at the same time, go through all the details, make sure we were able to get government approvals on time, which is very difficult because a lot of the approval authorities, they were all working from home too. So it was just, it was right. a big challenge, right. but everybody pulled together and made it work. And actually the client just moved in this month and are very happy with the base. And, you know, it was, it was challenging. I'm sure it was. And I, you know, I think starting with the fact that I'm sure that the, the owner of the property was very happy to hear that the tenant still wanted to move in because I'm sure one of the things that's happened or been happening, at least I'm guessing, is that some of these projects, it's a perfect time for a tenant to go, oh, you know, about that project. Not sure, <laughs> sure I want to go forward yep. with that, right? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'll put it to you that way, because even though the industrial property uh, environment has been very, very good, even during the pandemic, there have been a number of deals that have gone on hold or been delayed nevertheless. So you're absolutely right. That has been happening. I've even experienced that myself. But for the most part though, especially, I mean, that's, that deal was a good example. Yes, the landlord owner was very, very happy that we were able to go forward and continue on down the path to consummate the transaction and uh, ultimately occupy the space. You know, one of the things you mentioned is that um, industrial properties are still the leading commercial property type of deal going on right now. What do you attribute that to as opposed to other types of commercial real estate transactions? Well, great question. Since the bulk of my work over the 31 plus years I've been in the business has been in the industrial property area, I can tell you that one of the things about industrial is it, it of the various commercial property types, it's one of the easiest and simplest ones to own, improve, maintain, and occupy. And by that, I mean the bells and whistles that you have to go through to build out an industrial property typically are less 
than say a retail property or a shopping center or an office building. An office building, for example, requires a lot more money to improve the space for the tenant's use. And we refer to that as tenant improvements. And when you lease space in an office building, you have to have what's called a work letter relationship with the landlord. And in that work letter, it typically outlines what work the landlord has agreed to do for the tenant in order to improve the space to the point that the tenant can successfully move in. Those tenant improvement costs or packages as they're referred to are typically much greater in office buildings and the like than they are in industrial buildings. In an industrial building, for example, let's say a warehouse building, typically you have a small amount of office space that's built out and a large amount of warehouse space. And the other improvements that go into industrial buildings are the creation of loading docks complete with little platforms called levelers that allow you to load and unload product materials between tra truck trailers in the warehouse. And like I said, you have office space to be built out. You might have racking to be built in the warehouse that has to support various products that are stored in the warehouse. If you get more and more advanced, let's say an Amazon warehouse, for example, is much more sophisticated because then you have extensive sortation and material handling equipment that's built out in a warehouse. It's very electronic. It can be robotic. It can get very, very expensive and very, very complicated. But that's the atypical, super sophisticated warehouse situation. Manufacturing buildings are a little bit different in that very often you're putting in pieces of machinery that sometimes have to be bolted to the floor or have to have special electrical connections. If they're using water, sometimes you have to have special plumbing connections piped in and out of the building. So the, all those things are, again, referred to as improvements that sometimes are paid for and installed by the landlord, or sometimes in combination with the tenant, with the tenant paying some part of it, all of it, or none of it. The industrial properties are, are generally much easier to, to occupy own and operate than most other property types. And so the investment world really likes industrial properties. Has that changed at all with COVID-19 or do you no, see that changing? If anything, it's probably intensified a bit because again, office spaces are taking a big hit during the pandemic because you know people don't want to congregate in small office spaces with each other. Uh, right. Industrial properties, they're still much in demand not the least of which is because e-commerce has just about taken over the industrial world in so many ways. And so that all right. the e-commerce providers, be they warehouses for Amazon, Walmart, Target, medical yeah, companies, Target. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they all need warehouses. So if anything, it's intensified the demand for warehouse properties. It's easier to social distance in, in a warehouse, too, generally, because there just aren't as many people per square foot my guess is. That's right. So. That's right. In fact, in that warehouse deal I referred to earlier that we built for our client, you know, the 5,500 5, square feet of office space that was built out already has installed a lot of social distancing and safety measures to make sure that uh, they can still occupy that office space comfortably within the 252,000 square foot warehouse. Talk a little bit about the whole HVAC ventilation because I have no doubt that 
I mean, even my gym that I've gone to a couple of times, I've been brave enough to, to go, you know, people ask questions. What about the ventilation system? You know, is it adequate now that we've got all this COVID stuff we're worrying about? Yeah, there has been, as you can imagine, I mean, you're absolutely right. Be it a office building, be it a health club, those buildings where proximity to your neighbor are more intense than they are in, say, a retail shopping center, that's where you're seeing a lot of building owners and landlords installing, or at least talking about installing, special air filtration systems in order to purify the air as much as they possibly can. I, for example, belong to a, a local health club. They went through an extensive remodeling, ironically, starting last September that was just completed. And now during the pandemic, they only have a small portion. I don't even think they have 20% of membership have come back to use the club, even though they've installed a really sophisticated air filtration system in the club. I personally am not comfortable enough despite that system. And there are a number of buildings nonetheless, especially office buildings where they are installing those types of systems. But really it boils down to what's the comfort level of the individual workers and employees at the tenants that occupy the various buildings. How comfortable are they going to be to come back into that environment? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure I'm just thinking as a homeowner, you know, anytime somebody says you need to replace the HVAC, you're thinking cha-ching, cha-ching, right? Which is a challenge, I'm sure, for landlords because they want tenants to feel safe. And this is one way to do it. But, you know, you hate the idea of making that kind of an investment only to find that your tenants or your, the, your tenant's customers still don't feel safe, right? Right. And, and therein lies the rub. I mean, you've identified it perfectly. It's not that the landlords and owners, especially of office buildings, because that's where the biggest impact is being felt. It's not that they won't come up with ideas to make things work. But I think a lot of people are just waiting for a time when vaccines are developed and there's more, there's a less likely situation of infection, be that through the ultimate accomplishment of herd immunity from the coronavirus and other things that ultimately will make people more comfortable to come back into an office environment, for example. But ultimately, I think people will come back, but there will be some changes that I think are ultimately going to be permanent in terms of the way office environments are, are structured. In fact, we're already seeing experimental cubicles being created. You used to see where the cubicles were such that you'd have multiple partitions against one another with workers literally on the one side of the partition or another, they're actually moving the working area within a particular cubicle from one side of it to another so that there is more social distancing occurring between individual employees who are working in cubicles so that rather than being two feet apart, now they're like five or six feet apart and sometimes plexiglass or other plastic partitions or separators are erected on top of those partition walls to create more of a barrier between the mm. workers. Well, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. We need to take a quick break right now for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. But we'll be right back, folks, with David Liebman talking about commercial real estate. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Our guest this week is David Liebman. He's the managing broker of Merit Partners, 
and he's an experienced commercial and industrial real estate broker. Before the break, David was sharing a bit about COVID-19 and some of the impacts and some words of advice. And David, before the break, we, we really were talking about office space configurations and how some of those expectations are changing and how some of it might even be permanent. Talk a little bit more about that, because I'm sure both landlords and tenants are scratching their head trying to figure out how to get people back safely. And, you know, do they even need the space that they needed before the pandemic? Well, you're absolutely right, Doris. I mean, <laughs> landlords and tenants are all kind of scratching their heads, wondering how will all of this play out? And, of course, nobody has that final answer. And there probably isn't going to be a final answer because, for one thing, a lot of it depends on the particular industry. There are some service industries, let's take, for example, law, where the lawyers can often work remotely. In fact, in Chicago, where I'm based, there are even some law firms I know of that have gone to a completely 100% virtual existence. In one case, I know of a 15-attorney law firm in Chicago whose lease expired this past July. They decided to experiment working completely virtually, all of the attorneys and all the support staff working from home. Now, they're not sure whether or not that's going to work, but in the meantime, they're giving it a try. There are some other service industries, too, that are finding that they can go to 25, 30, 40, 50 percent or more of their staff can work virtually. But at the same yeah. time, Doris, we're finding out a number of industries are finding productivity issues when people are working virtually because <laughs> of that. Yeah, surprise. The lack of the ability to collect. Yeah, and, I, you know, maybe lack of accountability in some cases, depending on the company. I've joked with friends about how customer service has gone from bad to uh, nightmarish. Yeah, um, right. Mm -hmm. As you say, it probably depends on the, the segment and what the long-term implications are going to be. That's right. And uh, just some industries are more able to adapt better than others to a virtual environment, but not everyone does. And in fact, even those who think they might are probably finding out that the lack of collegiality, at least, of being in the same office with people to be able to interact socially as well as for work reasons. I mean, those are those are big impacts that a lot of firms really can't afford to withstand permanently. I mean, it just plain won't work. You know, they're they're all kind of experimenting, right. finding out what they can handle or not. Right. It's certainly very difficult for new employees. I mean, it's one thing when you build up relationships with people over a few years and you know how the company gets stuff done, but for a new person, it's very difficult. I wonder, do you think we'll start to see more of the old model I think some of the big consulting firms used to use, I think that what they call it office hoteling, where right. instead of you having your office in, the, you know, you knew your office was the third from the end on the 55th floor, you go and when you need to come into the office, you maybe are in the office one or two days a week or maybe not even that often, but you come in for a staff meeting or, or meeting with a client and they give you a box and they say, this office or that office is vacant. Here's your box of stuff and this is your office for the day. Do you think we'll see more of that? Well, definitely you will. What's interesting about that, it was already moving in that direction before the pandemic. But the funny thing was 
it took a little left-hand turn. And by that, I mean, you've probably heard the term co-working. Yeah. So what that was is, of course, you had firms like WeWork or Industrious or some of these other companies that are basically they're large landlords that acquire by lease large segments of office space in various metropolitan and secondary metropolitan markets around the country, if not around the world. And you have individuals coming into these spaces and literally sitting on workbenches or sitting on tables or sitting in small little partially demised offices and working very often very close together. Well, as you can imagine, the pandemic really created a big hit and not a good one in the co-working world because with social distancing, it's really not very advisable to have co-working space as it was before the pandemic. But what that means, though, is as you say, this hoteling that was occurring, that term basically means when in an office space, you have an individual that only comes in maybe one, two days a week to an office environment. They don't have their own office. They don't have their own private office. They may or may not have their own cubicle. So hoteling was developed to allow these individuals to come into the space and spend some time, maybe a few hours a day for one or two days a week in that office, working in that office, but it's space that they use for their own use that day. And it might be used by somebody else tomorrow or the next day. So right. there's a, right, a constant exchange of people coming in and out of the office. And this allows that particular firm to allow people to interact yet at right. the same time, not devote specific office space just to those individuals. I'm guessing you could probably cut, depending on if you're accurate about how often people come in and whether they have to book a space, but my guess is that you probably need half or less of the office space you might otherwise need if you went to that kind of model. Well, because of social distancing expectations, yeah. I mean, you are going to have people spacing out a little more differently and with various barriers in, in the way uh, are constructed, not necessarily in the way. But there might be some plexiglass barriers. In fact, there was a very interesting piece. One of the large commercial brokerage firms, Cushman and Wakefield, did an experiment where they actually created, this is the way the office space might look in the late or post-pandemic world. And they actually took unused office space that they occupied in one of the major metropolitan markets, and they turned it into a, what they called it as the coronavirus office space. And it, it was very, very interesting. They actually created you know, a lot of little placards on the floors so people knew how close they could get to one another. There were plexiglass barriers installed on cubicles. Cubicles were designed in a different way that allowed individual workers to social distance better. They had these uh, two-floor environments that allowed you to move up and down between floors, either by elevators or by stairs in a socially distanced way. I mean, it was a fascinating exercise, and I think it, quite frankly, was more than an exercise. I think it, it was very instructive for what uh, might be uh, the look of the office uh, space of the future. Interesting. Well, I I know we can't share really very effectively on the radio show, but, you know, I turned this into a podcast so that people can listen even long after the show has broadcast. I, what I'll do is if you send me the links to both that as well as the article that you co-authored that you mentioned, when I post the podcast, I can certainly link to both of those. And I think that would be very interesting for people. Oh, by all um, means, be happy to do that. 
Fantastic. Well, I, you know, I think we probably kind of talked the whole COVID thing to death. <laughs> maybe that's a bad, maybe that's a, a poor expression, but, you know, it's probably appropriate to pivot just a little bit and talk maybe more generally about some of the most common mistakes that you've seen in helping tenants negotiate over the years. I know there's some things you feel pretty passionately about. One of the ones that is not only a mistake, but a misconception that tenants of industrial and office properties have is that they don't believe or they don't understand the benefit of having a tenant or buyer representative like me or like our firm work with them. They don't see the value of that. Their thinking very often is, well, their landlord has told them that if we use a broker, then the landlord is going to have to raise our rates, our leasing rates, in order to pay the broker. And that simply is not the case. It's a great misconception. Most, if not all, savvy landlords, when they're doing their estimates, which are called their pro forma statements of what their costs are to lease office space or lease industrial space to tenants and to maintain the property, is they include in their calculations enough money to pay both their own listing brokers, the brokers that represent them, but also the broker who represents the tenant or the buyer. So that's already so, built into the transaction. And, and the, the tenant really doesn't pay anything extra for that, because if there is no tenant broker involved, then the landlord's broker, the listing broker, they get to keep the whole commission. Ah, so it's a little like residential real estate in that the landlord, like the seller, pays for the broker. And then if the buyer has a has their broker, or in this case, a tenant has their broker, then they share the commission. Is that, does it work that's, similar? That's, basi that's basically it. Yep. Broke the code. Wow. So yeah, that'd be like a buyer of a residential property saying, I, I'll handle this myself so I can save on a broker cut <laughs> when the seller's broker is just going to pocket the money. So why, why would you do that? Right. Well, right now residential, it does work a little bit differently, but for the most part, it's more or less the same, but then again, that's not exactly our focus here. <laughs> Talk about some of the mistakes that you've seen. You know, you, you mentioned that you're passionate about this five things that industrial and office buyers and tenants need to know. And I'm guessing that's come out of a lot of hard-fought negotiations and maybe some less than positive outcomes or even some of the most positive ones. Talk about that. Sure. No, I, I mean, you definitely hit one of my passions, and that is to be the most prepared. I came up with some tips and tricks for the industrial and office buyer tenant to know. Regardless of what kind of a marketplace it is, there are five things that, I'm, that I commend to people. Number one is make sure you take time to completely assess your needs. The industrial, the office tenant or buyer, really they're best at running their businesses or their service industries or whatever business they happen to be in, but they don't really understand all the nuances that go into creating the space that works best for them, but they know their businesses. So that's where we come in as buyer and tenant representatives, if you will, and we're able to tell them the things that are available in the marketplace and what they need to be aware of for their particular business. It's sort of the perfect complementary arrangement because we have, for example, checklists 
We have methods and processes that we go through to make sure that we come up with the most appropriate and most serviceable space for their needs. For example, I, this deal that I worked on earlier for uh, this 252,000 square foot warehouse deal, we came up with a letter of intent specifically for this user. It was 13 pages long. And that's what we submitted to all the different landlords from whom we solicited proposals to lease space to our client. And as you can imagine, even when you get down to the final list of properties, you know, in our case, there were three properties that we were focusing on. Negotiating all the terms of each one of those points on all 13 of those pages, that was a lot of work, but it was well worth it because the tenant got exactly what they were looking for at the end of the day. And even though it's a lot well, of could... work on the front end, it really, really pays off. You know, I'm envisioning that a lot of folks particularly if they maybe aren't as experienced in real estate and frankly, they're not in the business of knowing real estate, you are. I'm envisioning a lot of tenants have requirements that they don't even know they have or that they don't even know that they need to articulate. And I'm guessing that's where an experienced broker like yourself can really be helpful in translating these unarticulated thoughts and needs and wants into something that a landlord can actually understand and respond to. Well, that's absolutely right. And actually you've hit on what I what I like to think is probably one of the most important lessons I learned even when I was practicing law, even before I got into the real estate business. And that was I had a mentor who always said, write for the reader. Now you might think of that as well, that doesn't have anything to do with real estate. Well, it does, because all, all the saying means is you have to know who you're communicating with in order to be able to get the message across that you want to communicate. And communication, as I said even earlier when I was talking about that article that we co-authored, is you really do have to be able to communicate. And without that, nothing gets done right. And that's where, again, we come in with our expertise. We're able to create that communication between a tenant in terms of what they need or a buyer in terms of what they need and the landlord or seller who might or might not have the right property for them for their needs. Well, before we run out of time and we are headed right up to the top of the hour, I want you to finish David Liebman's golden rules about. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. So that was point number one. Point number two is you have to start the needs assessment process early. Sometimes a tenant will wait till like three months before their lease expires to do something. Big mistake. Quite frankly, whether you have a 2,000 square foot office lease or a 200,000 square foot industrial or office space, you really need to get way ahead of it. And we tell people you've got to get at least anywhere from 12 to 24 months out ahead of time to really start talking about what your needs are. Quite frankly, during the pandemic, it can even be more than that because now as the market starts to change, people really need to really get out early and see, well, maybe there are some opportunities I should take advantage of now, which might allow me to extend my lease now and take advantage of long-term savings. Yeah. That, that's a separate thing, but it's, it also means get out in front of these early. That's point two. Point three, know your hot buttons. Every business and industry has specific issues or specifications that are either make or break their deal. It could be labor issues. It could be the best location. 
It could be customer service considerations. But in any event, you've got to come out and understand what are the optimal points that you need to have fulfilled in order to get the best space that works for you and your business. That's point three. Point four, assess the impact of digital disruption. Well, needless to say, we have a hugely technology and internet-based society, whether it's based on things like software as a service or whether you're impacted by the use of big data, which is a whole other part of the world. But to properly have your business work, you must take advantage of the technology opportunities that are at your disposal and make sure that you have all the systems, software, and space that you need to create the optimal digital presence for your business. Lastly, and I'll admit, full disclosure, this is self-serving, engage the most experienced real estate professionals that you can. If you try to go this on your own, you're just not going to get the result that you ultimately want. You're going to spend a lot more time and likely a lot more money than if you work with seasoned real estate professionals when you're trying to assess comparable sales and leases, find the appropriate space in the markets you want to be in, prepare or submit negotiating letters of intent or offers to purchase. I mean, you just have to ensure that you are able to work efficiently with a landlord or a seller. When you're trying to work towards a mutually advantageous transaction, it really doesn't work well when you're representing yourself. I mean, it's sort of along the lines of that old saw, well, at least in the case of a lawyer, a lawyer who represents himself is a fool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The same is really kind of true for tenants and buyers of industrial or office real estate. They're really, they're really not doing themselves a good thing. In fact, they're doing themselves a disservice. And, yeah. you know, make sure you work with someone that has the experience or the designations as it might be. In my case, I have a designation called SIOR, the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, which is kind of like the best of the best of the industrial and office real estate brokerage world. There are only so many of us in the world. And, you know, we, work nationally and internationally, and we cooperate and help our clients do business in multiple markets. That's a really great organization, and we really have to acquire a lot of experience and undergo training and ethics training in order to get that SIOR designation. Wow, I didn't realize that, or I would have highlighted that in the (laughs) introduction. I hope folks were listening to that. You got there, in a nutshell, some pretty powerful words of advice that, uh, you know, it's it's not easy to come by that advice. So I hope some of you out there will definitely take that to heart. David, one last question before we let you go. How can people best reach you if they're interested either in your services or they want to just chat about industrial and commercial real estate? What's the best way to reach you? Mobile phone is... 847-721-6088, 847-721-6088, and my email, actually the website, I can give you that too, is www.meritre, that's M as in Mary, E-R, I-T like in Tom, R-E like in real estate.com, and those are probably the easiest ways to reach me. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It was great having you on the show. I learned a lot. Thank you so much, David. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Doris. That's our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening in. And once again, thanks especially to our studio guest today, David Liebman, Managing Broker 
of Merit Partners Real Estate Brokerage. You can find more helpful information and resources for entrepreneurs and small business people on my website, globalocityservicesplural.com. There's a library there of blogs, tools, podcasts, including this interview and other guests on the show, as well as other resources. Now, be sure to join me next Saturday. We'll have another great guest. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring. 